So keep your Bibles open there uh, at that passage. All four Gospels come to their climax in the resurrection of Jesus. But each one of the Gospels takes its own way to that end. The other Gospels provide us with the memories of others of the apostolic band, and John gives us his own unique perspective as an eyewitness and one of the earliest people, you notice, to get there and discover the empty tomb. He was the first in the race between Simon Peter and himself. He was the first to get there, we read in this passage. But Simon, typically, jumps in, and John gets to go second in the end. But this, uh, these differences that you find in each of the four Gospels about the record of the resurrection, I think, indicate two things. First of all, that the Gospel accounts are not a stitched-up job. Uh, they're not the product of collusion or stereotyped composition, or else they would be tidier. It would be, they'd make sure they got their stories straight in each one. That's usually a sign of something that's been put together. Secondly, the differences are exactly what you would expect from the spontaneous evidence of eyewitnesses. This is not an official narrative, and there are many things that indicate that. And we're going to look particularly at one of those things this evening, because the focus of John's account is on the first day of the week. Even the way he describes it is interesting. He doesn't say on the third day, we would expect him to say that, the third day that became a part of the Christian creed, that on the third day Christ rose from the dead. Rather, he refers to it as the first day of the week. No doubt he did this deliberately. The first day of the week, Sunday, was the day in which Christians from the beginning has, had gathered to worship. By the time John is writing, that is the day when Christians gather in the evenings or early morning, after their day's work or before it, in order to worship the risen Jesus. That first day of the week became a signal of new life. It was the day of the resurrection. It was the beginning of the new creation that God was bringing about. It was the beginning of, of this new thing that God had done, the, the rest that God has brought His people into, the beginning of a process that will end in the final rest, the Sabbath rest of the people of God. John begins early in the morning, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, somewhere between three o'clock and six o'clock in the morning. It was a bunch of ladies who, they'd been there at the cross. We saw them last time as we saw Jesus on the cross, and they're standing nearby. They'd been there all of that time. They get up as early as they possibly can on the third day, the day after the, the Sabbath rest, as, as early as it was safe for them to get out onto the streets and to make their way from the city outside to the garden tomb. In the process, as they're walking there, one of their number, Mary Magdalene, in her enthusiasm and zeal, walks faster than the others and gets there earlier than they do. F.F. F. Bruce, the scholar, says, it's amazing how little we know of Mary, Mary of Magdala, and yet it's surprising that we already have a very vivid impression of her vital personality. We know some things about this woman. Uh, some things are legend, and some things are true. 
What is true is that she was a demon-possessed woman out of which Jesus had expelled seven evil spirits. What is legend, a la Dan Brown and others, is that she was a prostitute before Jesus met her. She was nothing of the kind. That tradition grew up many, many, many years after she had died herself and after the apostles had died. All we know about her is that she had had a very bad background. She'd been demon-possessed. Christ had delivered her from that terrible background, and she in turn loved Him for it. If you've been delivered from any terrible thing in your life by the Lord Jesus, if He has changed your life at all, then you recognize in Mary's response her love for Jesus. You recognize what it is. And as Mary comes to the tomb, we remind ourselves that she had stayed close to Him. She and others, these other women, had stayed close to Jesus. When He'd been arrested, they'd followed along behind. They'd watched everything that took place. They'd seen Him as He's arraigned by the authorities. They'd followed Him from one place to another, from, from the Sanhedrin's headquarters to the uh, headquarters of the Roman governor. They'd watched and they'd waited for news, and they'd been anxious, and they'd seen Him brought out, stripped, and beaten. They'd seen Him dragged through the streets as He carries His own cross to the place of execution. They'd seen Him crucified and raised up on the cross. They'd stood there as He bled before them, as He spoke. They'd heard His words. They had stuck by Him when the men had run away and out of fear for their life. They stayed close to their Savior and their Lord. And Mary was one of those women. Now it's the day of resurrection. And like the rest of them, she didn't know it was the day of the resurrection. She'd gone in the morning with the others, and she's not expecting what they're going to see. We can dispose immediately of those theories, those dismissive theories about hallucinations or wish fulfillment. These women were not expecting anything. There was nothing in their expectation that would have made them have hallucinations. As far as they were concerned, He was dead. They were just going to do what they could do for the dead body of their Savior. That's all. We already know, we're told uh, about the disciples themselves that they did not understand from the Scriptures that He must rise from the dead. That's true of all of them, the men and the women. They did not understand from the Scriptures that He was to rise from the dead. And yet as Mary comes to the tomb that morning, we can say that as she goes, her faith has been shaken. We can say that her hopes have been dashed. She does not go to the tomb that morning in faith. She does not go to the tomb that morning in hope. She goes to the tomb that morning in out of love. That's all that's left to her. Love for the Savior who had delivered her. Love for the Savior who had in His grace restored her. And even after death, love lived on. And though he was gone, she still wanted to do something for him. Mark tells us that as they went, 
these women down towards the tomb. They were discussing together how they would move the stone. They didn't know what they were going to do. They didn't have a plan. They hadn't sorted out their strategy. They didn't have a project manager among them, apparently. They hadn't decided how were they going to do it. Maybe they would use their charms and try and get the Roman soldiers to move the stone. I don't know what they had in mind. I don't think they knew what they had in mind. What was driving them was love, love for the Savior. And as Mary comes to the tomb, she finds it empty. Well, that's the beginning of the story. And the other women must have arrived at this point, and then Mary takes off, and she goes and tells the disciples. She tells them what she knows. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid Him. And immediately, Peter and John, the two leading disciples, they run to check it out. They run ahead. She walks behind. They run ahead, and uh, John gets there first. Peter looks in. He sees the evidence of the resurrection. He sees the, he sees the cocoon of the heavily plastered with, with ointment uh, b- b- uh, grave clothes lying in the shape, as it were, of the body that had once been in the, the grave clothes, collapsed in and, in and itself. And then over at the side, folded up neatly, lying at some move from the grave clothes, the headband. And it was that little thing that John says, for him, the penny dropped. This was no grave robbery. This was the disappearance of a body. This was resurrection. Now, what resurrection meant at this stage, John isn't sure. But he knows it's not being robbed. He knows the body has not been removed by the soldiers. He knows that Jesus has disappeared from his own tomb. And off they go. Very gallant of them, by the way. Off they go, and they leave Mary standing there. By this time, the other women, they've gone off, and she's alone. She's standing there. And that's where we find her in verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb, and she sees the two angels in white seated where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head, one at the foot. Now, we can understand her grief. We can understand her standing, crying at this point. Now that the movement and, and, the, and the tension is over, now the finding of the tomb empty, the running to the disciples, them coming and investigating that part of movement and drama, driven as she would have been by the adrenaline, is over. Now the adrenaline rushes over. Now the dam bursts. All the emotion, the anguish of watching him die, of having seen him taken down from the cross, of having followed those men who buried him to where he was buried, the waiting over the Sabbath, the anxiety, the desire to go and do something for him to finish the task of preparing the body for burial, a proper burial, was all over. And the dam burst, and 
She is in tears, gripped by her grief. So gripped by her grief, she isn't even surprised that there's two angels sitting there in the tomb. And through her tears, uh, she doesn't even register that the person is being an angel at that moment. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. Do you see the significance of her reply? All she could think about was the Lord's body. Resurrection never entered her head at this point. There was no faith, no hope, only love. She did love him. And because the body had been removed, she has no interest either in the tomb or the angels, and apparently not even for gardeners, but only for her Lord. And it's while they're talking, these angels are talking to her, and she's giving her reply, that there's movement behind her. This, we have to kind of imagine the scene there she is. She, she's talking through her tears to these two figures in the tomb, looking into the tomb where they are, and there's a movement behind her. And she turns around, and John says she sees Jesus standing there. Now, this is her own record. You understand? John got this from Mary. John wasn't there. This is Mary's own recollection. She turns around, and there's Jesus standing there. But John says she did not realize it was Jesus. And Jesus says to her, woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? The same words the angels had said to her. And in the early light of dawn, with tears in her eyes, she doesn't even look at him. Half turning, she sees a figure, a man whom she takes to be the gardener. And he says to her what the angels had said, Woman, why are you weeping? Twice she's asked that question. It's a kind of gentle rebuke, as if they're saying to her, why would you be weeping today? This is like the third day. Why would you be crying right now? Because the tomb is empty. It implies, in other words, that she and the disciples could and should have known that Jesus had clearly said several times over, as the Gospels record, that on the third day He would rise from the dead. They'd heard that. They'd heard it over and over and over again. They'd heard it from the best preacher ever, and they'd forgotten it, which encourages me that you forget most of what you forget <laughs> before you even leave the room. They'd heard this over and over and over again. One of the striking phenomena and part of the honesty of the record that we have in the New Testament is, is the, the disciples, that they're writing the books, for goodness sake, and they're telling the, the story, and repeatedly they confess to the fact that they were deaf to what Jesus had been telling them. It's one of the striking phenomena of the Gospels that the people who become the leaders of the church are obviously and clearly uh, deaf to Jesus' teaching and to the continual revelations that Jesus gave them concerning 
his resurrection. He had great difficulty convincing them that he was going to die. They didn't even believe that. When he said he was going to die, they thought he was killing them on. I don't know why they thought he was kidding them on about that. That's a serious kind of thing to say, but he told them that over and over again, and they didn't believe him. It was only as they saw the opposition closing in on him, they realized that his words were true. But even then, none of them grasped that Jesus said that he must die, and then on the third day, be raised from the dead. And Mary, Mary, like the others, like the men, didn't factor resurrection into her thinking. Now, Mary, in many ways, is just like us. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a distressing circumstance when it seems as if the, the sky has come crashing down on you, and Christian though you are, you immediately forget all the promises of God. They just kind of evaporate. You memorize them. You've heard them preached on. You've heard them over and over and over again. You've sung about them, for goodness sake, and they just evaporate from your mind. You feel sorry for yourself. You're anxious and you're upset. And so quickly we forget the promises of God. I remember reading the story of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was susceptible to depression, and he'd been in a very dark place for three days in a row. And, and uh, something had gone wrong. He got depressed about it. He allowed it to weigh on him. He was so down. And on the third day, he comes down for breakfast, and his dear wife, Katie, is standing there, and she's dressed all in mourning clothes, all in black. And his first question to her at breakfast was, who's dead? And she said to him, God. Luther said, don't be ridiculous, woman. <laughs> Dear wife, don't be ridiculous. What do you mean God is dead? God cannot die. Well, said Katie, the way you've been acting, I was sure that God was dead. Well, uh, Mary turned to see who was there, and she, we're told, and this is her own testimony, thinking he was the gardener, said. Now, I thought about this bit, thinking he was the gardener. I'm, I'm thinking of the day I get to heaven one day, and about maybe 10,000 years from now, I bump into Mary. And we introduce each other, and she says she's Mary, and, and I ask her, which Mary is that? And she says, well, it's, a, it's the Mary of Magdala. Oh, that Mary, okay, really nice to meet you, and so on. Mary, I don't suppose anyone's ever asked you about the, don't even say it. Liam, don't say it. I know exactly what you're going to ask me. I've given the explanation now about five billion times. I mean, we're in eternity now. Five billion times I've given the explanation. Yes, I did think he was the gardener. Okay, that's it over with now. Can we talk about something else? I mean, it's going to be really embarrassing for Mary, but there it is. It's written down in the Bible. She thought Jesus was the gardener. And she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. You see, she's locked into this idea this is, this is the authenticity of the story. She's locked in to the idea that the body's been stolen, it's been taken away, it's been put somewhere else, somebody else has taken it. 
and she turns away from the supposed gardener and looks again at the tomb and hears the voice behind her. Miriam, Mary. And it was her name that suddenly caused the penny to drop. It was hearing her name in a familiar voice that triggered the recognition. She'd heard him say it a hundred times. She turns immediately and she cries out in joy in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now, these are just little touches, aren't they, in the story? They're the kind of little touches that make John's evidence so powerfully authentic. He's recorded this evidence for you too. This, this message of the gospel is real history that happened, true history that happened. This is the kind of faith that we need, a first-century faith, not a 21st-century religion that can do without a God who acts in history, a God who just kind of acts perhaps in a kind of spiritual world somewhere up here that has no interaction with the here and now and with the there and then. The living God interacts in history, and He has acted in history in Christ, and He raised Christ from the dead, and Mary was there, and Mary heard Jesus say her name. The resurrection was real. No wonder people like Peter, Peter who went in that day into the tomb, who just burst in. I don't know whether he tripped up and he fell into the tomb. I don't know what was going on there with Peter. But later on, Peter wrote, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He's given us new birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Mary came with love, but no hope. The resurrection gives her hope. It awakens faith at last. And John shares Peter's confidence. And there's something moving. Did you notice? This is, this is the very first encounter there is in the New Testament with the risen Jesus. Mary Magdalene gets to meet Jesus before, in his risen state, before Peter and John do, before anybody else does. And she wasn't important. She wasn't one of the leading lights. We might have expected it, but it was Mary, the mother of our Lord, meeting the risen Jesus after the resurrection. We might have expected that, although that doesn't happen. Maybe because God in His providence who overrides history knew that she was going to be made too much of. No, it's Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene, if you hadn't noticed, is a woman. And the word and witness of a woman was not admissible as evidence in law, either Jewish law or Roman law at that time. These were patriarchal societies. Women were oppressed. People, women were disregarded. Women were sidelined. Women were put into their place, into the little slot. It was a result of the fall. And yet here is the beginning of Jesus' purpose to restore what had been lost in Eden by man's disobedience. What had been lost? Rome, uh, Genesis chapter 3.16, God says to Eve, 
your desire, literally, you will turn toward your husband, and he will be a despot over you. And that's the way it goes on in Genesis, as you, as you find. You go to the next chapter, all women are for is begetting children. The chapter after that, women are taken by a man and made his concubines. And so it goes for the rest of the Bible. Here is the beginning of the retrieval of what women were meant to be before the fall. They're given dignity back by the risen Christ. It is the first step in the recreation of the world. The first witness to the resurrection is Mary. Now, I want you to go down to verse 17. Because here's Jesus saying to this to Mary, Mary, do not hold on to me. I wonder if you wondered about those words. Because Jesus, uh, Mary is not only given a sight of the evidence, the empty tomb, the clothes, the angels, not only is she given a, a sight of the Master, she meets Jesus personally, but she is given a sight of the future. She's given a very interesting insight into the great future that lies ahead of the church and of the Lord Jesus Himself. Do not hold on to me. What does that mean? Well, it, it certainly was not because there was nothing to hold on to. He was not a ghost. It can't have meant that he wasn't going to give her evidence the way that he gives to Thomas when he says to Thomas, you remember who'd been doubting, touch my wounds, put your finger into the wounds in my hands, put your hand into the spear wound in my side. Mary doesn't need evidence. He's there. He's talking to her. He said her name. She's got her arms wrapped around him, hugging him. She's going to go back and tell the disciples, I have seen the Lord. She knows His voice. She's hugging Him like there's no tomorrow. Why not? The joy, the surprise, the delight, the relief. It's a natural response. Even if you're not a touch, even if you're English and you're not touchy-feely, you can understand this. And Jesus says literally, do not keep holding on to me. The first hug was okay, Mary, that's fine. But let me go, please. It's not that Jesus doesn't uh, understand the value of touch. He did it all the time to people, lepers. He touched them and He healed them. No, no. Jesus was always ready to reach out His hand to the dispossessed, to, to raise the fallen, to cheer those who were faint. He wanted people to know at a very human level that He loved them, valued them, affirmed them. Jesus reached out and touched people. He was a tactile person. When He's describing the prodigal son, you remember, who comes home, we're told that when He comes home and while He was a long way off, His father saw Him, was filled with compassion for Him, and ran to His son and threw His arms around Him and kissed Him. That was Jesus' story. It's the way He saw things. And yet, here He is saying to Mary, Mary, don't keep holding on to Me. Why? 
Because Easter Sunday, the day of resurrection, was a day that would change things for Mary and for the disciples. It would change their relationship with Jesus. Jesus knew the value of touch, but He also knew its limits. Mary holding on to Him would not help her for the future. So when He said to her, Mary, don't keep holding on to Me, He's being pastorally sensitive, not insensitive. What was the future going to be? Don't hold on to Me, verse 17, because I'm not going to stay. It's not going to revert to the way it was before I died. Your relationship with me, Mary, isn't going to be the same as it was before I was crucified. And he explains to her, because I'm not staying, for I'm yet, not yet returned to my Father. You can't freeze frame the story of Easter morning as if the resurrection is it. That's where it stops. No, it doesn't stay there. It has to move forward to the day of ascension and enthronement. Jesus is going back to the glory He had with the Father before the world was. He never lost it, but He's going to take His humanity back into the glory that He had with the Father before the world was. His humanity is going to be glorified with the glory of the Son of God who shared the glory of the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. That's where He's going. And from now on, Mary will have to live the way you and I live. From now on, Mary will have to live by faith. Don't hold on to me, Mary. From now on, the world is going to be an unfamiliar world for you. You've been with me for these years. You've heard me speak. You've seen my miracles. You've been in my company, but now you're not going to have that. No one is. I am going back to my Father. You're going to have to learn to live by faith. You're going to have to live in a, in a world in which you will never physically touch me anymore. You know, Mary has taught a lesson here that some of us need to learn. It's this, uh, some of us have the idea that the Christian life Christian experience must have those high points, those overwhelming points, if not physical touch, at least the equivalent in experience, a kind of heightened experience of God that, it, that is so exalting and, and wonderful that, that, that gives us a buzz and, and lifts us up and makes us feel great. And if we don't have that, then there's something absolutely wrong in our Christian life. Jesus is saying to Mary here is, when He says, don't hold on to me, He says, it's time now, Mary, to live by faith and not by sight. Mary, you've got to see me. Others are not going to see me, but they're going to believe in me. Mary, it's time for you to live like them by faith, not by sight. Relationships were going to change for Mary and Things were going to change for Jesus. He was going back to His Father's house. He told them that in chapter 14 of John's gospel. He's going back there to prepare a place for us, and then one day He'll come back and take us to be with Him where He is. Don't hold on to me. Instead, I want you to do something now. I want you to go to my brothers and tell them that I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 
He's teaching Mary some deep theology here. He's saying that Jesus is both one of us and distinct from us. Like us, He is human. He has taken on human nature, but that's only one aspect of who Jesus is. Jesus has a different relationship to the God and Father of us. We are are children by adoption. He is the child who shares the very nature of God from all eternity. And Jesus is not turning His back on His friends, but He's going to glory and preparing a place to bring them to. Easter is only the beginning, and it's the beginning of the end of the purpose of God for His people. I remember when we moved from Glasgow down to London, we had to do it in two stages. I had to go on on my own and drive down and set up things and get the furniture organized and all the rest of it start work down there. Christine and the children were going to stay in Glasgow because they had to finish off their school year before they could come down. And I went down and uh, got the house organized. It had never been so good because I got to do it myself. And, uh, And then eventually they came. And they were delighted with what I'd done. It was great. Our Lord Jesus has gone to heaven. He's gone back to the Father. He's gone to prepare a place for us. And it's going to be a place for each of us, an individual place that suits us, that we love, a place place where we will be happy forever, perfect, perfection, the perfection of bliss. He's going to prepare a place for us. Jesus delivers this message to Mary and says, I want you to go and tell my disciples this. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary took that message. She took it back to the disciples. They were all waiting, listening, listening to Peter and John telling the story, we found the empty tomb, and so forth, and the grave clothes were there. We don't really know what this means. What does it mean? What does it mean? In through the door comes Mary, and she says, boys, I've seen the Lord. Can you imagine how thrilled they must have been? How thrilled they must have been. What else did he say? What did he say? He said, he's going to his Father and our Father, to his God and our God. Remember, he said, I am going to prepare a place for you. That's where he's going. That's where he's going. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the experience of our sister Mary who now sees her risen Savior face to face in glory. We're on the way there, and we pray for the grace of the Holy Spirit to keep on the way, on the journey. And we pray, Lord, that the encouragement that you gave to her would be an encouragement to our hearts. That those times in our lives when faith is low and hope is gone, that love can remain. Love for the Lord Jesus love for all that He is to us. Would you stir up our hearts, we pray, to love Him as well as to serve Him. In His strong name we pray. Amen.